All right, we got a great show for you today. Kyle Samani from Multicoin Capital is on the program. They made a massive bet on a crypto project called Solana, and that has become one of the greatest investments in the history, at least at this point. I don't know if they're liquid on it. <laughs> uh, in the history of all investing in the world, because they bought Solana, which has now become an Ethereum competitor, coexister. And this guy has got really strong feelings about Bitcoin and a bunch of other uh, crypto projects. He's a very honest guest who's done incredible, incredible in crypto investing. Uh, we really double click on a lot of important issues. You're going to love this as an interview. Uh, and he's got strong opinions. Uh, but first, we're going to talk about the end of 996 at ByteDance, the makers of TikTok. Uh, as you know, 996 is the moniker for 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., six days a week, basically the working style at Chinese tech and finance companies, which was modeled after how we used to work in the 70s, 80s, and 90s here in America, but we kind of deprecated that a bit. Well, now ByteDance has mandated that employees only work from 10 a.m. to 7 p.m., Monday through Friday, no more weekend work. They have to ask for permission to do overtime. Some weird stuff going on in China, and we're going to drill down, double-click, and go deep on it. Stick with us. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Squarespace. Turn your idea into a new website. Go to squarespace.com twist for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Drata. Don't let requests for SOC 2 compliance reports slow down your business. Use Drata to stay ahead of the curve. Go to drata.com twist for 15% off. And microacquire. The Startup Acquisition Marketplace. Start the right acquisition conversations at your own pace. Get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers with total anonymity. Say goodbye to brokers and meet your ideal buyer today. Go to trymicroacquire.com slash twist. Okay, China's ByteDance, the makers of TikTok, has killed the 996 work schedule and it's mandating that employees only work between 10 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday to Friday. 996, if you don't know, was what people in China in the tech industry were working. That means 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. six days a week, which, by the way, when I was coming up in New York, in the media world specifically, were considered the hours. If you wanted to work at Condé Nast or the New York Times or any magazine, you're expected to get in in the morning, stay till late at night, you would eat at your desk, you would order dinner in most nights of the week, or you go out to dinner, you might come back to the office afterwards. And you were expected to come in on a Saturday or Sunday, do four or five hours and get ahead for the next week. Uh, the world has changed, obviously. And in China, specifically, Xi Jinping has got a different worldview. And he's de emphasizing, you know, these celebrity CEOs like Jack Ma, he's hasn't left the country in a long time, I think it's two years or so. And he is charting a new path for China, which is certainly more insular. And part of that is really getting into the social fabric of how people live their lives. We saw their video game uh, changes and how much people are allowed to use video games. And now we're seeing work hours come in. Bloomberg reviewed an internal document from ByteDance. According to the article, the document uh, would make ByteDance, quote, one of the first tech companies in China to officially mandate shorter working hours. Some of Silicon Valley thought the 996 schedule would push China ahead of the US. Sequoia's Michael Moritz, the greatest venture capitalist of all time, according to many, and the statistics. Uh, so it's pretty close to true. It's definitely top four of all time, Mount Rushmore. 
Uh, he wrote a Financial Times article back in January 2018, which was vilified by some on the uh, woke far left. Uh, Silicon Valley would be wise to follow China's lead because uh, if we're going to be competitive and there are entrepreneurs there who are working those kind of hours on very important projects, whether they're space projects or their AI projects or healthcare uh, related biotech projects, we do need to keep pace. And uh, now we're seeing something different out of China. The Bloomberg article noted, under the new policy, employees can apply to work overtime no more than three hours on a weekday or eight hours on a weekend. According to the document, they will receive extra, extra compensation of up to three times their normal wage. For the overtime permission to work overtime must be requested at least one day in advance. The article also notes that earlier this year, ByteDance, quote, canceled an alternating system where employees just take one day off per week every two weeks, which is crazy. 13 days of work every 14. Uh, that sounds like a recipe for disaster. Uh, on October 13th, Bloomberg reported the Workers' Lives Matter movement currently occurring in China. That's an interesting co-opting of uh, Black Lives Matter. The movement included a spreadsheet where Chinese tech and finance employees shared, quote, what time they start and end their workday, as well as how many days per week they work. As of October 13th, the article had 4,000 entries, or I should say the spreadsheet had 4,000 entries. Right now, the uh, spreadsheet links to a, a blank page, so it's probably deleted. It appears that this grassroots effort is working uh, across a lot of uh, other big companies. The sheet called Working Time has been viewed more than 10 million times, according to the South China Morning Post reporting. So very interesting. Workers getting a say, and uh, maybe, yeah, it's hard to know what's going on in China and hard to know how this will play out but definitely china is charting a new course and everybody who's an expert on china did not see the decapitation of their top tech ceos or the limiting of video games the limiting of working hours as what china's new strategy would be in fact everybody thought the opposite they thought china would out hustle us work harder maybe be more entrepreneurial, take more companies public. So this certainly is something very weird that's going on there. Uh, and so we'll keep an eye on it. But uh, for me in America, I tell everybody in my companies, uh, if you want to be at a startup company, a finance company, I think a fixed 50, a solid 60 hours a week is what will get you ahead in your career. Don't want people working 78 hours a week. At this point in my career, I'm successful enough, the companies are successful enough that People, I mean, there are some people who I'm sure work 78 hours a week who just love it and are obsessed with their work and are super go-getters, but it is a recipe for burnout. And for me, at this point in my career, I'm trying to get people to stick with me for five or 10 years uh, and grow and build their careers. If you want to keep people for five or 10 years, especially when they're working from home and all this burnout culture, you know, if people want to punch a clock, they're probably not going to, you know, if they do 40 hours a week, I don't think you're going to move forward in your career. Uh, you're going to maybe fall behind. If you do a fixed 50 or a solid 60 is the way I phrase it. Uh, you put that extra 10, 20 hours a week in self improving, that could be reading a book that could be taking extra meetings, you know, catching up on the weekends on some email for an hour or two while you drink your coffee. You know, those kind of things are what got me ahead in, in my career and different strokes for different folks. If you don't want to move faster in your career than other people totally get that uh, I wouldn't work at a startup I work at a big company uh, because at a startup that might might 
make you an outcast if you're not keeping pace. Now, some people are super wildly efficient. I've seen people work 40 hours a week and do more than somebody doing 60 or 70 hours a week where they're just hanging out at the office. But that's over now. Work from home changes this whole game. So, you know, work from home, people can just see when you report on what you did this week or you talk about in the staff meeting what projects you're completing and uh, everything's written down. So you kind of see in people's weekly or daily reporting what they're getting done. So I think the performative nature at staying at the office all hours, which I do know some people did. Uh, I certainly did that in my early days. I would come in early and I wouldn't leave until my boss left. A lot of times I was there and it's like six or seven o'clock. I know my boss is going to leave at nine and I'd say, what do I do for the next two hours? What can I do? And I go find a book about Novell networking or Banyan Vines or document management. And I would just teach myself a new skill, but I would never, ever leave before my boss or my boss's boss. Now my boss would leave at exactly five, you know, oh one. They would literally be at the elevator four fifty nine, five, five oh one to catch like the train to Long Island at five twenty five. But I always looked at my boss's boss, who was Mike Savino, and I said, I'll, I'll leave when Mike Savino leaves. <laughs> I'm not leaving until he leaves. And he would work till eight or nine o'clock. And then once in a while he'd say, Hey, what are you doing here, kid? And I'm like, Oh, I'm catching up on this and I'd show him what I'm working. He goes, Hey, you want to go get a bite to eat? We go around the corner of Manhattan and get a bite to eat. And that's how we started a lifelong friendship and he mentored me and my career made huge jumps because of that work ethic. So think it through if you're an entrepreneur. Okay, next up, my interview with Kyle Samani of Multicoin Capital. They've made a fortune, probably one of the best bets in the history of investing with Solana. But we also talk about how he, he has absolutely no interest in Bitcoin and that it's irrelevant. Pretty uh, hot take there. Uh, stick with us. It's going to be a great interview. You're going to learn a lot. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you can blog or publish content, promote your business, announce upcoming events or special projects, sell products and services of all kinds, and more. No matter what the problem Squarespace is, the answer, you know that. And they have these beautiful templates by world-class designers, powerful e-commerce functionality, and everything you do is optimized for mobile right out of the box. You also got built-in SEO, free and secure hosting, and of course, their 24-7 award-winning customer support, which you're not going to get if your cousin builds your website and puts it on his backup server, trust me. Back in 2020, we decided to create a new idea during the pandemic. We called it Remote Demo Day. We have founders pitch to thousands of angel investors over video conferencing and we purchased the domain name RemoteDemoDay.com and had the site up and running in minutes thanks to our friends at Squarespace and Remote Demo Day has been a huge success so far. Uh, we've invested almost $20 million in those companies. Pretty great. So go to Squarespace.com slash twist for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use that offer code twist to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain and congrats to the team for going public back in May. What an amazing journey. Great job, Squarespace team. Hey, everybody. Uh, next up on the program is the co founder of a uh, firm called Multicoin Capital. And they were started in 2017. And they are currently, uh, according to my sources, uh, one of the highest performing, if they were a venture firm, highest performing uh, venture firms in the history of venture capital, because they made an incredible bet on Solana, uh, which is a platform that's competing against Ethereum and has done incredibly well. It's according to my sources, which you know, are in all likelihood Billy and David Sachs, who talked about Solana on the all in pod. 
Uh, it's 100x fun. So uh, with us today is Kyle Samani to talk about all things crypto. Welcome to the program, Kyle. Jason, pleasure to be on the show. Longtime fan. Honor oh, to be thank here. Thank you. Oh, that's, that's very kind of you. Um, so um, I know that a number of my besties uh, were early supporters of uh, Multicoin Capital. My friend Vinny Lingham, I guess, is one of your partners. He uh, introduced you guys to the famous Bill Lee that nobody knows, uh, who's actually the greatest investor, <laughs> angel investor of all time, the true goat. But since he's underground, I get to claim that uh, title. And then uh, my friend David Sachs, of course, from Kraft, were anchor LPs in your fund. So tell us about what was multi, what is Multicoin? Tell us about that first fund and the thesis for how you're investing. Uh, sure. So Multicoin Capital is an investment firm uh, based in Austin, Texas. We have 15 employees, uh, a few billion in, in assets across various funds. We have two primary fund structures we manage, uh, a hedge fund and a venture fund. Craft was uh, an investor in both of those vehicles. Um, and uh, we invest in crypto things. We invest predominantly in tokens. We do invest in equity from time to time, but are definitely token-focused investors. Um, we have kind of three mega theses that we've outlined on our website, and those have been there for a few years and continue to guide our investments. And I expect these will uh, theses will continue to compound indefinitely. Um, those three theses are open finance, which is kind of a superset of DeFi, uh, the Web3, and the opportunity for non-sovereign money. I think out of everything we, we have done falls in one of those three buckets, although I'll, I, will, I will admit Web3 is a little bit broad um, and a little bit all-encompassing. Um, today, between our hedge fund and our venture fund, uh, although the, the, the legal structures are mechanically different, um, they're the same investment team manages both of those, um, and it's the same core theses across them. And in fact, there's a lot of name overlap as well between them. Um, our venture funds are typically higher risk, higher reward, more concentration in newer names. Our hedge fund is a larger, later stage entity um, that ends up holding a lot of the same names because we like to hold stuff that we like, and we like to hold as much of it as we can. Um, and that's kind of how we do things. And uh, part of the idea is that you will run one of the nodes on these new networks, so you get to understand it. So you're actually participating in the formation in some way of these new projects, I guess, is what we call them today, not companies, they're projects, correct? People use the term project, tomb protocol, um, collective, DAO. I mean, there's there's a lot of we weird names for these things. Um, running nodes is part of, of, you know, being involved in these systems. But I would argue it's actually some somewhat of a commodity. Um, we don't run nodes in-house ourselves. We work with probably 15 different firms externally to, to do various node operational things. Um, and, we, and we work with 15 and not one uh, because we want to be decentralized and help these networks stay physically um, and organizationally decentralized. Um, I think the, the, the real value add we bring when we work with portfolio companies, or portfolio protocols, whatever you'd like to call projects, them. Projects, yep. Projects. Projects, protocols, and platforms. I guess the three P's. I'm trying to understand this myself, <laughs> but I get it. Um, yeah. But I mean, it comes from, I'd say, stuff that looks more like what VCs do. So helping with recruiting, helping with messaging, helping uh, with strategy. Um, and, and then I think a couple of things that are particularly unique to crypto, um, the most notable of which I would highlight is what I'll call engaging in crypto capital markets. Um, capital markets and equities, both public and private, um, 
they, they evolve over time, but they're relatively static at any moment in time. Mm. Um, and because they're quite regulated, um, it's hard for them to change. Probably, the, for example, the, the largest change that's happened over the last decade has been the, the length of time at which private companies stay private. Um, and in crypto, you have kind of the exact opposite phenomenon that's happened, um, which is these things go public, you know, at one month or maybe like six months old. Um, mm. and, and that's a very different set of things that, that happens in the life of, of building something of value. Um, it changes how you have to think about messaging and, and, and uh, to constituents groups. So customers versus users versus speculators. Um, those are different constituencies. And like, it, it's not always obvious um, how to think about balancing those different stakeholder groups. Um, in particular, there's even the venues in which people trade these assets are obviously different. These are not trading on the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ. Um, and how do you, you know, uh, again, like even messaging, right? You don't have quarterly reports or 10 Qs or any of these things. So figuring out the right kind of communication and uh, cadence and format and strategy, um, thinking about exchanges, thinking about countries, th thinking about languages, like this is just a very different set of problems, mm. um, right? Even most American publicly traded companies, I would venture to guess, have extremely few Chinese retail investors as owners of their, their, uh, their equity. Um, in crypto, that's probably not true. Mm. And so, um, you know, young uh, groups of people working on these interesting hard problems have to deal with, you know, these kinds of things. And it's very non-intuitive how to go about thinking about messaging and communicating and coordinating in this new capital market. Um, folks like us, you know, who've done this 30, 40, 50 times um, have seen what works and what doesn't work and can help those teams kind of figure out the right capital markets engagement strategy. Um, I think that's a, one of the things we do that's that's particularly unique, and it t takes years of doing this to kind of figure out how, how to so really do it. So 30 or 40 times, you've met a founding founding members of a project, a company, a team, a crypto project, and then been the first investor or amongst the first investors who buy those tokens in the initial token sale. Is that correct? Correct. And so how do you find those companies? Uh, are they all hanging on a telegram or is it you know, uh, on uh, Discord servers, or is it just in the just a crypto community writ large? Yeah, I mean, that's the way we source deals and, and get deals done is, is pretty similar to how most VCs do it. So we have networks, obviously, in the crypto community, other investors, other entrepreneurs, people are sending us stuff all the time. Uh, we know a lot of people directly, obviously, and they just cold you know, just message us and, and we chat. I love cold emails. My Twitter DMs are open for better or for worse. <laughs> <laughs> um, so stuff comes in that way. Um, you know, there's hackathons, which, you know, again, we attend and, and are kind of involved with in various forms. So the actual mechanics of sourcing are, are pretty, pretty standard. Mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of getting deals done, I would also say it's pretty standard. The only difference really between, I'd say, deals we do and um, traditional equity deals is these token provisions that are added to them. Um, the token provisions are unfortunately not as standardized as I would, I would like. Um, and that's just the reality of, Teams being in different countries, um, LLCs versus C-Corps, um, some warrants and other things. There's a lot less standardization there than... than um, so with a project yeah. like Solana, how did you find them? And then how did that initial token offering go down? How much did you put in? How many tokens were released? When did all that happen? Tell us the story of Solana. Yeah. So um, I actually don't remember who introduced us to Anatoly. Vinny. But, uh, Vinny, Vinny may have introduced us. So... Yeah. Uh, met with Anatoly at some point in April of 2018 while I was in SF for some other reason. Um, 
I recall a few things about that first meeting. Um, one, the title slide, the, the subtitle of the title slide said NASDAQ for blockchain. And I, w- I remember thinking this is very corny and like overplayed, but like, okay, mm-hmm. you're, you're making a very pointed argument or, or claim. Mm-hmm. Um, and then two, Anatoly um, had a very different background than all of the other layer one founders I had spoken to. What does um, layer one mean to, for people who are neophytes? Yeah. So, I mean, Bitcoin is a layer one. Ethereum is a layer one. Um, Polkadot was kind of a layer one. Uh, Phantom, Binance Smart Chain, Polygon. A layer one what? What does it Sorry, mean? Sorry, a, a layer one blockchain. So, these are, this is a, the actual physical network of nodes that are maintaining a database that can run smart contracts of, of some form. Got it. So, when people launch a project, they can launch on a layer one platform, and that's where their tokens reside, and they don't have to build the infrastructure over again. Correct. Yes. Got it. Committing to security and compliance is vital for startup growth, and proof of security has never been more important. As you scale, you might start to receive more SOC 2 requests from customers, of course, and that's where Drata comes in. Drata is a compliance automation platform used by some of the world's leading CISOs, CISOs, you may have heard of it, Chief Information Security Officers. A lot of early stage startups don't have a CISO, despite the obvious importance of security and compliance with Drata. You can easily meet requirements, support enterprise deal flow, and track compliance. Drata helps customers prepare for and clear SOC 2 and other audits. Go from zero to audit ready in a matter of weeks. Take it from Philip Martin, Chief Security Officer at Coinbase. He called Drata's solution well ahead of other market players and said Drata provides users with the most advanced automation available. So here's your CTA. Check out Drata's five-star reviews on G2 and see why companies like ClearCo and Smart Recruiter work with Drata for their compliance needs. Twist listeners can get 15% off and waived implementation fees at drata.com slash twist, D-R-A-T-A dot com slash twist. So, so Bitcoin was kind of sort of the original one, but Bitcoin is quite limited in what it can do. Ethereum is uh, substantially more flexible and programmable, um, but has serious limitations around scaling and some other things. Um, Solana is kind of an attempt at at bringing uh, the last twenty years of of computers, high performance computer science and distributed systems to a layer one blockchain. Um, and, and the second thing that struck me about I remember my conversation with Anatoly is he's like, all I've done in my whole career is make things go fast. He's like worked at at Qualcomm, at Dropbox, at, at yep. Mesosphere, a few other places, and did that. And he was not academic at all, um, and was just like, I make things go fast. And uh, th- that struck us as like, yeah, the, these distributed systems, like those problems in computer science, have been understood for quite some time. Um, and here's a guy who has been building various distributed systems for for ten, fifteen years, and really understands them. Um, and is just applying kind of this new crypto economic paradigm on top of that. Right. Um, and and uh, that struck us as like a very differentiated kind of founder so market fit. And we had uh, Anatoly on recently, episode 1302, for those of you who want to hear from him, uh, from Solana's uh, CEO. He, you guys then uh, participate in Solana's initial coin offering or their initial token offering. I'm not sure what the term of art is today. Uh, I guess coin has been, uh, is not used because ICOs were kind of, uh, have a negative uh, spin to them. but these uh, tokens are released, you buy them for four cents, and you buy 100,000 of them or $100,000 worth or $250,000 worth? You know, I don't, I don't remember how much we bought in the initial token sale, um, which was in May of 18. Um, they did a subsequent round in August of 18. 
um, which we led. And then uh, in, in the company or in the tokens, we all the Solana Labs has never sold equity. It's so Got it. all all uh, we're just token sales. Got it. Um, we led the round in August of 18 in early 19 after the market crashed at the end of 18. A bunch of investors uh, wanted to sell and get out. We bought out a whole bunch of those investors. We led another round in June of 19 uh, and then bought out more investors after the token launched in April of 20. Wow. Um, so we've been accumulating soul across various entities at various prices from four to four cents to a dollar 20. Um, and we've been buying more recently in the public markets as well. And then uh, you are buying these. It's a token but it's kind of a security you then i guess get to distribute them to your uh, lps in your fund like i would an lp in the launch funds and then they can sell them if they want to if they can find a buyer and then uh lock in a reward without ever having bought into a c corporation a delaware c corp correct um i'll agree with most of that other okay. than i'm not sure i'm going to call solana security but directionally everything else you described i would say is accurate right so how does one determine well it kind of acts like a security in terms of the lps right they they have this asset that's gone up in value so i guess that's one of the big questions here um and uh so then they get you get you distribute them and they get to sell them and get a gain if they want do you how do you take how do you have custodianship of all of these and make sure that you don't get hacked or something horrible doesn't happen and then when you distribute do you actually send somebody's wallet a bunch of soul uh or do they have like a custodian and then how do you mechanically make sure that this stuff is safe yeah so uh, i don't know if that's a stupid question or a really important question because we don't have this question in startup investing because it's just a cap table and some cfo somewhere will you know make a change in it and it's all paperwork etc this stuff just moves on solana as really fast (laughs) Um, I, actually, I think it's funny you, you made that last comment about the CFO because even in that, there's a lot of trust involved, sure. um, in that system. And it's like who kept all the PDFs and like made sure the Excel document got updated correctly. Yeah. Um, Wilson Sonsini, <laughs> right. a bunch of law firms who get paid 1200 an hour. Yeah. yeah. Generally, a good theory rule of thumb is if you can unbundle a function of a law firm and turn it into software, that's usually a good, good business to be in. Yeah. They like, um, they like doing that too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so w- look, when we started, it was it was a lot worse. We self-custodied a lot of stuff back in the day. Today, uh, if you read our LPAs, uh, our LPAs do say we can self-custody because whenever new assets are created, sometimes there isn't an institutional custodian provider at the time of the network launch. So from time to time, we do have to take self-custody and there's a whole set of processes we, we do around that. Um, but at this point, you know, 98, 99% of our firm's assets are custodied with, uh, primarily with Coinbase custody, um, as well as with BitGo and Copper. Who are institutional SEC qualified custodians? So um, those custodians will hold your stuff and charge you one percent of the assets a year or something. I heard or no, fifty basis points. It's much lower than that. I, oh. I, I'm not sure I'm allowed to disclose their pricing, but it's it. one one percent would be extremely high. So uh, it acts just like a venture firm, except these tokens uh, can be used in the real world. Uh, so you explain the framework before. You have people who are working on the project. You have speculators, investors. Uh, and then you have people who use the tokens. Is that right? Those are the general uh, constituents in these groups? I think that's approximately correct, yeah. And so uh, with Solana specifically, what it was the value, what's the value proposition? Because it's not NASDAQ for blockchain right now. It's something else. Wh- what is it today? Or did they actually meet that uh, original vision? 
And why has it all of a sudden become one of the top six or seven crypto projects? What was unique about this one? Yeah. So, um, again, Anatoly's original vision was I want to run an order book on chain. This is well before DeFi was even a term. Mm -hmm. Um, DeFi as a term was coined in about October or November of nine of 18. Um, and Anatoly kind of understood that blockchains are, are financial engines primarily, first and foremost, and that you should design a system from the ground up to enable price. Price discovery is the foundational function of capital markets. And the, the way you have price discovery is you have an order book. Obviously, this is what NASDAQ and NYSE and, and plenty of other people do. Um, so that was the goal from day one. The Solana blockchain launched on April of 20, of uh, uh, so about a year and a half ago. And... Uh, Conveniently, right around the same time, a guy named Sam Bankman-Fried, who's the CEO of FTX, started to get real excited about DeFi um, and, and realizing it was going to change his, his FTX business um, as, a, as a centralized exchange. Started hacking around on Ethereum, was extremely unhappy with performance of the system, and looked elsewhere and ended up picking Solana to kind of uh, go all in on uh, for two reasons, primarily. One was... Um, the the, under, the understanding the importance of the order book as the fun, fundamental technical primitive that underlies all the finance, and two the focus on intra shard scaling as opposed to inter shard scaling, which is more or less what everyone else has focused on in crypto other than Solana, um, and uh, that led him to build this thing called Serum on top of uh, Solana, which is a decentralized exchange and an order book um, on the Solana blockchain. Um, and that kind of hat launched in August of last year. And since then, uh, that's kind of sparked a, a real growth in a, a DeFi ecosystem around Solana, and which has then led into NFTs and all kinds of other really interesting uh, things. So um, when you look at NFTs, NFT, some NFTs were uh, are now trading on Solana, because it's much cheaper to do that. There's less fees, and it's faster. Solana's a hundredth or a thousandth the amount of time and money as ethereum is that directionally correct yes well that's approximately correct and then usdc i just had jeremy alera on the program because this, this week in startups is turning into this week in crypto <laughs> um we had jeremy alera on he's doing usdc a stable coin that's basically following the rules he also is in, on solana correct so these two major use cases were a big part of how this thing grew Recently? Yeah, th th those two things really helped to get off the ground. Jer Jeremy's background is, is not as much of a trading background, but he's a really focused on payments. And uh, again, he, he understands that absolute hard requirement is sub second, sub one penny transactions. Like, and, and if you're a payments guy thinking about enormous payment scale, those two things are paramount. And so that really drew him into Solana. Microacquire is a startup acquisition marketplace that cuts out the middleman. Basically, that means they help startups get acquired efficiently. If you're a founder looking to sell, Micro Acquire is free, private, and involves no middlemen. You know how it is. Uh, you try to get a deal going. There's somebody in the middle. They don't care about the parties involved in some cases. They just want to close a deal. And you really have to wonder, who are they working for, right? You're always wondering about incentives there. Well, you don't have to worry about incentives at Micro Acquire. To date, Micro Acquire has helped hundreds of startups get acquired and they facilitated hundreds of millions in closed deal volume. Their platform includes over 100,000 buyers, including me. I'm, I'm paying for the service. It's pretty great. There are thousands of startups currently listed for sale, and hundreds of successful acquisitions have occurred so far. Founders get free and instant access to over 100,000 trusted buyers while staying totally anonymous. 
on the other side of the marketplace, buyers like me simply pay $290 a year for access to deals on the platform, which means eh, you're, you're getting rid of the looky-loos, right? Unless you're serious about this, you're not going to pay the 290 So Micro Acquire helps startups find buyers. It's as simple as that. They'll help you start conversations that can lead to an acquisition in just 30 days for free. Just go to try.microacquire.com slash twist. Once again, try.microacquire.com slash TWIST. Is Solana overtaken uh, Ethereum at this point in terms of where developers want to build or is that and where speculators want to speculate on a, a token? Those are two different groups of people, but I'm curious your thoughts on each one because it does seem we talked about the Ethereum Bitcoin flipping. They seem like two different use cases from everybody I talked to. One's programmable and, you know, one is a sort of value, but Ethereum and Solana feel like they're, they're actual competitors. And people have been speculating, hey, when do these things flip? And, and what would be the case for that flipping? So, well, I mean, obviously you have a horse in this race, but give me your best yeah. um, impression of when Solana overtakes it. Because it looks like USDC is going to overtake Tether. So the idea that these crypto projects were going to maintain their positions is kind of ridiculous as a premise to begin with. So let's talk about first Ethereum versus Solana. Yeah. And I also want to revisit the, the Bitcoin question too right yeah. after that. Um, so. Uh, in terms of speculation and just dollars, I mean, it's no question Ethereum is substantially larger, both ETH versus Sol, and then also the Ethereum-based assets versus Solana-based assets. That's primarily a function of, of age. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think Sol Solana ecosystem is growing at a much faster clip. And I think, I venture to guess, if you look at the prices today, the price of Sol versus ETH in terms of market cap is like, I don't know, 15% or 17% kind of range. So call it a fifth or six, a sixth the size. Um, so still has a long ways to go, but, but is pretty obviously compounding at a much faster rate for now. And I expect that will continue indefinitely. Mm. Um, in, in terms of developers, it's harder to measure. Unfortunately, there's, there's no perfect way to measure these things. Um, what I can say and what I, what I think most investors who are focused on the space will say is there's a lot of developers they have spoken to in the last 90, 120 days who have gotten excited about crypto, who want to build in crypto. They look at Ethereum, they look at Solana, and they're just much more drawn to Solana because um, of the, the performance characteristics of it, the fact that it's built in Rust, and, and a lot of there's just so many developers around the world who are big Rust believers. Solana is every single line in Solana is written in Rust, and Rust is the flagship language for the SDK. Um, and so Solana is piggybacking on you know that mega trend in computer science um, in, in a big way. Gaming people in particular seem to love all that stuff because they're mm. performance, you know, performance nerds. Um, and so game people are, are quite attracted to it. Uh, the other group that is extremely attracted to it is, is Wall Street and trading people. Um, all of the Wall Street folks, again, this started with, with Sam and, and Alameda and FTX, but, you know, jump trading has gone very, very big in building on Solana. Um, jump is one of the largest high-frequency trading firms in the world. Um, and they've been quite public about a lot of the work they're doing. Um, and in the last six months or so, you've seen um, various other large trading firms, you know, publicly acknowledge Solana, and, and they're kind of implicitly buying Soul and, and doing other things. Um, and, and so, at a minimum, gaming groups and Wall Street trading firms have gotten quite excited, and that's really led to a, a lot of this developer activity, especially of spinouts of those firms. So what's your position on Bitcoin then everybody the, the Bitcoin maximalism and the Bitcoin toxicity movement 
are, you know, on Twitter, which is not a real place, as Dave Chappelle will remind us, um, is pretty crazy. Like, they really are of the belief that there is going to only be one true. And uh, if you don't buy into that thesis, then have fun being poor. What's your thought on where Bitcoin has, you know, sort of carved a space for itself in the ecosystem? Yeah, so um, among my peer set, I am almost certainly the most bearish on Bitcoin. Um, Why? Uh, I, I don't think Bitcoin will be relevant in five years. Um, it won't be worth zero. I just don't think it will be relevant. Mm. Um, so if it's not few- relevant, why wouldn't it be relevant? Yep. So uh, two reasons. Reason number one, the value of having a million developers building stuff, doing cool things, onboarding users for various weird apps. Um, it, today, you, a, a reasonable person can look at Ethereum and Solana and say, this is a bunch of nonsense. There's a bunch of DeFi speculators and people trading shitcoin images of JPEGs. And like, this is dumb. And I understand how normal people can come to that conclusion at the current moment. In five years, it is so plainly obvious to me that there is going to be hundreds of millions of people doing really interesting, cool things with NFTs, DeFi, and who knows what else it's going to be. Um, and everyone in the world will acknowledge that and, and recognize there is some fundamental value there. Meanwhile, Bitcoin, and, and all of that action will be happening on Ethereum and Solana and, and who knows what else, but it won't be happening on Bitcoin. In five years, I'm pretty sure Bitcoin will look approximately as it looks today because the point of Bitcoin is that it does not change. Like that is the defining feature of Bitcoin. Um, and uh, like I get why that has some resonating value. It is simple. There, there is some comfort in knowing that it's not going to change. But we don't live in an era of mean reversion. We live in an era of exponential software. Right. Um, and, and every year that goes by, the, the older folks are passing and the younger people are controlling more and more wealth. And like that doesn't feel software native. Um, the world is clearly moving towards that digital native, uh, you know, uh, software defined kind of venture type thinking. And so um, I expect with a very high degree of probability that in five years time, any rational person is going to look at Bitcoin. They're going to look at Ethereum Solana. And it's going to be like, one of these is irrelevant and does nothing. And one of these is the future. Um, Got it. So it's the feature set of the platform that will define its ultimate um, you know, role in the world. And if Bitcoin doesn't change, yeah, that's a feature. But if it doesn't change and it doesn't increase in price, and these other platforms are being used to create the next level of apps, it's almost like having an operating system with no apps. And then Solana and Ethereum are like, ios and android and you're like well why would i want to own this you know whacked out app this platform that doesn't do anything in the world correct so that that that's uh lens number one and then lens number two is uh and and this is where the bitcoiners again really miss a few key things all of the layer one blockchains bitcoin ethereum solana etc all of them have a native asset in their systems that native asset is used to pay fees to pay gas um, and that native asset has some defined monetary system, some monetary schedule, supply schedule. In Bitcoin, it's 21 million, and it's already very famous and again, very simple to understand. Ethereum's has been undefined and, and is evolving, but is not perfectly defined. Um, Solana's is actually, I would argue, much better defined than Ethereum's. Um, it was 500 million at, at Genesis with a defined inflation rate. And so far, it's, they haven't modified anything, and I don't think they will. Um, the importance of the 21 million meme of Bitcoin is not the 21 million, 
The importance is that humans cannot change the supply schedule, right? That That is really the key thing that you're optimizing for. Um, and then secondly, and relatedly, there's you don't need perfect precision. Bitcoiners would tell you that if you don't have nine nines of precision on the future of the supply schedule, the asset is worthless. Mm. And like, that's just like obviously wrong. Um, right. Every asset in the history of the world up until crypto has had like at best one nine of precision, like maybe two nines of precision, but like not even three nines or four nines. And the Bitcoin people are like, you must have 10 nines. And it's just like, like, no. Um, and, and so, yes, I agree. Ethereum and Solana's supply schedules are not as credibly neutral as Bitcoin's. Um, just because the assets aren't as old and the, the whatever, a whole bunch of obvious social reasons. When a new reasons. group of, if uh, Solana has this inflation and I don't know what percent it is, but you tell me what it's percent like seven, it is. It's like seven or something right now. And it'll so, go down to one and a half. So if they, that means they're going to put more coins out there to be sold at the market rate, or how does that work? Or is it going to well, be not, given not to they, the... Yeah. It's, it, it's, it's the validators who are running the network are receiving the inflation. They're earning them. Earning right. them so for So it's not like there's going to be another coin offering that Correct. the project gets. Correct. Um, but even if the project was getting something, wouldn't that be good for the project to have more resources? Or does the projects not need any more resources? Because that's the one thing that I think is either inspiring or scary about these projects, which is who's in charge? Okay, it's decentralized. Nobody's in charge. Okay, it's become really big. Uh, kind of would be good for somebody to be in charge if something went wrong. So we haven't seen something go wrong all that often. Of course, Zolana famously went down for a little bit because it got a, a denial of service attack of sorts. Somebody flooded the network and went down for 12 hours or something. So yeah, for non-crypto people who worry about no central authority, um, what's the answer there? Um, yeah, I mean, like that's that's the kind of defining thing is that there there isn't a central authority. Are are humans a feature or a bug? I don't know. You tell me. Um, most people would say feature. I can make an argument bug. <laughs> yeah. Um, eh, but but even that, I, I'll say it's not a it, it's too simplistic of a framing. Um, and actually, let's use Solana's network outage on September 14th as actually a good case study here. Um, there was a bug in the system. It was actually a known bug that actually had a patch was written, but not had, had not been deployed. Um, and nonetheless, someone spanned the network, network went down. At that point, uh, yeah, the core Solana engineering team obviously was trying to diagnose the issue. A bunch of people all over the world were also trying to diagnose the issue. Issue is diagnosed, patch is released in a matter of two or three hours. Um, at this point, you just need a bunch of people all over the world who have to run these nodes to know what's going on, download the patch, install it, and reboot their computers, more or less. Turns out that took like 14 extra hours to do. Um, and so, you know, again, is that a feature? Or is that a bug? Um, if the world depends on Solana, that's kind of a bug because 14 hours is longer than three hours. Uh, on the flip side, it also proves the point that the Solana team does not control the network. <laughs> right. Like, because they couldn't get the people to restart their damn computers and install the software. <laughs> right. And, but if there's enough of them, it should be create more redundancy. And there's a financial incentive for them to get their nodes back up and running, which Correct. is they're getting in, fees in, in, for doing transactions, etc. So Correct. It's, it's not dissimilar to ISPs. If an ISP goes down, they lose customers to another ISP and they work to keep the internet running at Verizon or Comcast or aws or whatever service you use and yeah i guess we've had some issues with you know different infrastructures in the internet 
but it's gotten better and better over time. Let's talk a little bit about this key issue that keeps coming up. Are these things tokens? Are they securities? Um, and I know one of your portfolio companies got sued. And listen, anybody can sue anybody for any reason. Uh, but Definity, um, you know, has been specifically sued by a California resident saying they violated the 1933 Securities Act, basically saying these are securities, et cetera, yada, yada, without going into that specific case. What is the best practice today in putting these tokens out to make sure you're in compliance? And is the SEC done enough to make it clear what's going on here? Yeah. Um, so uh, for Definity, real quick, um, we are small passive investors and we don't, we're not close to the team. I have no insights as to the case or anything else. Can't say anything more than that. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, when you're buying this, it's not like you're on the board of the company. There is no company. There is no board in most of these cases. Yeah. I mean, we were just a very small investor a long time ago. But anyways, yeah. um, so second comment I'll say is, um, you know, investor protection rules are a thing. Um, the substantial majority of investor protection rules in the United States were written um, in the wake of the Great Depression. Yep. Uh, because during the Great Depression, people got desperate for money and started conning and scamming people to make money. Um, hence, most of the laws were written in 33, 34, and 40. Um, and then the Howey test, which is kind of the, the test that really has created the, the bright line litmus test in the United States was, I believe, 1950-something, right? Um, and, and more or less all of the laws that are being used to, uh, around investor protection in the United States, for the most part, were formulated in that, in that period. Um, the world has obviously changed a lot since then, most notably the internet and, and just general information awareness and ability to do, to do due diligence and all those kinds of things. Um, I, I generally am a fan of updating worldviews on these things, given how the world has changed. Um, but obviously I'm not, I'm not in a position to, uh, what do you think would be if you could wave your magic wand and say, Hey, here's something that balances investor protections, KYC, money laundering, et cetera. What would be a fair use of this? Or, or a fair proposal here in terms of trying to qualify these things, because we all know that yes, they can have the function of token. But as we were discussing earlier, there are people speculating on the token. So it's almost like an open, you know, it's, it's basically like an open cap table where anybody can participate freely, but it's not doesn't have the protections of the NASDAQ or the stock market, not that those are perfect either. Um, what What would be a reasonable way to do this if you were in charge? Do you have you given it any thought? Of what yeah, you would like to so, see. so K KYC AML stuff, I am in no way qualified to comment on yeah. counterterrorism, bank secrecy stuff. I, I have not the slightest clue. Um, so I will, I will reserve no judgment there. Um, on in investor protection stuff, I, I think, again, the, the primary question you have to ask, I say meta question is, what is the time horizon on which you are optimizing for um, at, at the social level? So um, if you optimize for maximum increase in overall economic output for the economy as a whole over an indefinite time horizon, mm. which I, I think is the right time horizon to take at the social level, then you should be probably something that looks like close to no investor protection formally. Um, if you want to go to that extreme, the question is, how do you balance the cost of introducing those protections on all of the good actors um, against the, 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 uh, the deadweight loss of theft and fraud from the bad actors, right? Mm. Um, and that's like a fundamentally difficult thing to reason about because it's all counterfactual kind of stuff. Yep. Uh, my intuition is if you multiply any efficiency gains in the economy, you know, 10 basis points, 50 basis points over, you know, a, tr a base of a trillion or something, 
The answer is almost always just maximize economic productivity growth and economic value created. So I, I kind of tend towards that extreme. I realize I am not, um, you know, normal in how I think about these things. Um, but that, that, that's how I would approach the problem. Uh, the, I'm curious what you think of my simple proposal, which is, you know, maybe there's a sandbox when you're under X dollar amount in which you can operate freely. And then when these things become larger, 100 million, a billion, 10 billion, we add in some staged um, compliance that needs to be done. So that if there was a bad event, if there was a bad actor, um, like I would say, Tether to me seems like a very bad actor given the fines they've been given. I think you probably agree, or anybody in crypto would agree that they haven't uh, acted with a lot of transparency. Um, you, you can't get a project to 70 billion without transparency. Uh, so what do you think of that sort of basic proposal of a staged amount of regulation so that people can, you know, have a, a, a playground, a sandbox if it's under 25 million or something? Yeah. So, I mean, again, it's one of those things that, that sounds good in theory. The problem is like, how do you do it in practice? Because like, again, a network like Solana is very different than a network like Helium, which is totally different than a network like Graph or Audius. Mm -hmm. And like, yeah, there's elements of these things that feel like companies, like, obviously, you do have a core group of people who sit in the same room and talk to each other and like build software and like, yeah. But also there's a lot of elements of these things that are really external to the core, to the core team. And the work output of those people, both labor and financial capital and intellectual capital, is fundamental to the long-term success of whatever the thing is. Mm. Um, I, I find that securities laws today are, are too inwards-facing, meaning they, they seem to assume that the, of the value that a team will create, the vast majority, say 95 or 99% of it, is being produced by some small group of people. Um, and... It, crypto is fundamentally about trying to flip that and say, what if the core team only produces 5% of the value and 95% of the value is produced by ex outsiders? And captured by outsiders. Yeah, it, it produced and captured by outsiders. And like, again, none of these things are 100 zero in, in either direction. But like, if you believe that that ratio can be flipped, which I, I really do think it's possible, then it, it really makes it difficult to even like, what, what transparency do you want from who? Like the data's on chain, whatever's on chain is there. Um, there's lots of great data visualization tools, stuff like Dune, stuff like Nansen and others out there. Um, what disclosure requirements should there be for the team? And, and even what objectives are you accomplishing? It, it's not yeah. actually clear how to reason about a lot of these things. Let's talk about DAOs then. Uh, decentralized Autonomous Organizations, sometimes referred to as DACs, Decentralized Autonomous Corporations. These seem to have captured people's imagination. I'm getting hit up all the time. Hey, create a DAO for your angel investing, yada, yada. Uh, create JCoin or, you know, angel coin or something. And um, I think for uh, a, a starting point, why don't you tell us what you think, why you think DAOs are important if you in fact do, and what would be an application that you think could be a, a killer application of a DAO? Yeah. Um, so I think the simplest mental model of DAOs um, is that they're just LLCs. They're just digitally native LLCs. Um, which Limited is- Limited liability corporations where you have partners in them. Correct. Um, and I, I think that that model gets you like 90% of the way there. It, it's not fully complete, but it's actually pretty close. Um, the biggest difference between DAOs and LLCs is it's a lot more easy to transfer ownership rights, obviously, in a DAO than in an LLC. Again, yep. all the lawyer fees go to zero. You just click a couple buttons. Um, and then- it's also very easy to prove that you own 
sub part of this LLC or part of this DAO, so to speak. And therefore, you can do things like uh, privileged privileged access, tiering hierarchies, community token gated discords, whatever. Um, but it's really just an asset you can own, right? And that other people also own, and, and then you can work together. Um, the notion of capital formation is not new. Um, we had the you know the precursor to the LLC was like the what are those things called from the 1400s? Um, like uh, joint ventures or whatever. Yeah. Like that was kind of the first, you know, real notion of like capital formation, I would argue, in, in the economy. Um, really something that kind of represents modern capital formation, anyways. And like DAOs are just reducing friction, um, e in increasing access, making it easier to transcend borders and payment rails um, between countries, and then ability to get capital, all forms of capital together, financial, intellectual, whatever, to achieve some greater good. How does one mechanically start a DAO? Is there an Amazon Web Services of DAO creation? You know, if you form a venture firm, you just go to a law firm or Assure and Carta and um, AngelList, of course, now have a platform for creating a, a fund and they've abstracted and made it like Amazon Web Services where somebody can just go create the registration documents, fill out a form and you know, basically, they've taken half the work out of it, maybe 75% out of it, and the expense. How does one create a DAO today? Do you need to have a bunch of developers to write this code? Um, and it's bespoke? Or is there an Amazon Web Services yet of DAO creation? Yeah, so uh, the AngelList example you brought up is, is instructive, where AngelList is really focused on a specific type of, of fund entity thing. Yep. Um, LegalZoom is like another interesting kind of comp here, where they make it easy to create LLCs of various forms and shapes. Yep. Um, there will be different DAOs for different quote unquote type types of functions, whether they're investing or collecting or whatever else. Um, and, and so like there's a group of, of DAO creation and management things focused on managing an on chain fund. So that actually is very nicely comparable to AngelList. Um, as, as you just described it. Um, there's groups of these things that are general purpose. So things like Moloch DAO, which you need to be more dev e to, to use. Um, and there's, uh, people working on other types of DAO creation tools for guilds for these play to earn games and other things of this nature. Today, you still need to be a dev ish to create one, but mm. like it's just like copy paste some code and like throw it on a blockchain. It's like, you know, doable in an hour kind of a thing. Um, so when we do in, this example, okay, go on. In, in 12 months, I think there will be a lot of people creating a lot of DAOs who don't know anything about software engineering at all yeah i'd like to be one of them and so uh when you because i have been so critical of icos and that sort of chaos but what i'm seeing now is actually very serious people doing things by the books and being thoughtful about it and legal frameworks starting to catch up with the technology with the technology and then maybe some way to abstract and create some stability here so Let's go through an example here of a DAO. Has there been a DAO that's been successful to the best of your knowledge investing in non-crypto assets? Because it seems like a lot of the DAOs are, hey, let's all put X millions of dollars together and then we'll vote on which crypto kitties and, you know, angry apes or whatever, monkeys and, and crypto punks to buy. Am I correct that those have yeah, been so kind of the pools of capital that have come together so far? So, so most of the... Da yeah, so I think what you're describing is generally accurate of most of the DAOs, I, but I think your framing of DAOs might be a little too narrow. Okay. Um, DAO, I called yeah. it an LLC, which again is is useful but incomplete framing. Mm -hmm. um, decentralized is somewhat clear. Autonomous is actually, I think, the more interesting, uh, most interesting three of the three letters 
An interesting letter of the three letters. Okay. Autonomous. Almost none of these things are autonomous, but uh, some of them are. Um, so, so Bitcoin is the first DAO, I would argue, um, where the DAO specifically is a game between people who are buying BTC because they believe in the 21 million meme and miners who are mining BTC if and only if the cost of mining it is less than the current price. Mm. Um, otherwise, you wouldn't mine BTC. Otherwise, you would just buy it. Right. You'd be losing um, money. Right. So, you don't need um, servers. <laughs> right. But, 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 but Bitcoin is the first decentralized autonomous organization where there are rules in the system that define mm. how the system works and then people are just acting according to those rules. Um, right. So in some sense, you could argue Bitcoin is the world's largest DAO. And I, I think that's, it's a little bit stretching it, but you can kind of see where I'm going with that. I do see where you're I, going with that. Basically, who, you know, Satoshi set up a framework that cannot be changed, but then the correct. people can operate within it in a collective to achieve goals. But because it can't be changed, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the Bitcoin maximalist may come to find a day when other platforms own all the apps. And why would you buy an operating correct. system that doesn't support the the breadth of apps that the other ones do with Ethereum, Solana, whoever. Yes. So continue, yeah, yeah. So 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 that Bitcoin's the, the first DAO, arguably. The the biggest problem with Bitcoin DAO is the output of the DAO is nothing. It's it's you waste yeah. electricity on proof of work hashing. Yeah. Um, the next probably most interesting DAO at scale is probably Helium, mm -hmm. um, where Helium again you have this mining concept and like similar to Bitcoin, but you have people who have built a physical network. Um, all over the world. There's, I think, more than 250,000 hotspots today. Uh, you can see the network live at network.helium.com. And like, for people who don't know, this is a share your Wi Fi router, earn cryptocurrency, and you people are paying to get onto that Wi Fi network. And they now have thousands of nodes buying these specific Wi Fi routers. So if you had Comcast at home, you plug it in, and now you're earning cryptocurrency whenever outsiders pay for that. Kind of like imagine a decentralized boingo am i correct uh, yeah so directionally what you're describing is correct uh it is not a wi-fi sharing network today it is a iot network so different set of radio frequencies um but generally that's the idea you can think of it as decentralized boingo is, oh there's another one that's doing wi-fi but this one is to do iot devices so if an iot do and this is a, an acute problem for iot if you wanted to put into your iot device something small like a radio a watch or something connectivity you'd have to go cut a deal with AT&T to be on their little slurping network and pay per device a dollar or two a month. And it just makes it not worth it. Yeah. It, it, there's all kinds of problems with the AT&T and Verizon wireless networks. Yeah. Um, and, and Helium is interesting. But coming back to your original question about DAOs, the Helium, there is no Helium DAO in the sense that like there are other named DAOs on Ethereum and Solana. Um, but if you think about Helium as a whole, what you have here is a set of rules about uh, the set of rules primarily define uh, the rate at which inflation is handed out and who inflationary tokens are handed to mm. people who are then buying hotspots to maximize the number of coins they can get. Um, and that thing is autonomous. Like the rules are there. Um, that there is some governance and the rules have changed a few times based on on global input. But like, it's a DAO. I mean, like these people have built a wireless network where no one owns the network. Yeah. Um, so then if the Verizons of the world, or what's really interesting about this, if somebody decides they're going to sue <laughs> because they feel like, you know, they're competing, which is what a Verizon or a Comcast might do in these kind of situations, it's like, okay, who are you suing? Some individual node owner? There's nobody responsible 
uh, and everybody has started doing this. It's like a, ma a vast protest, and they're going to do 5G devices. So this is going to get really right. interesting really quick. Yeah, Helium 5G just started rolling out like a week or two ago. Oh, did it start? Real oh, wow. Yeah. So in this model, I would buy one of these 5G routers, I'd plug it into my Comcast at home, Comcast would never know. And then I'm letting people connect to that 5G and I earn these tokens for providing it, correct? Bingo. Boom. Uh, and then uh, Audius, which I think you also invested in, is doing something similar with music and sharing of MP3s and trying to make a dis distributed Spotify, essentially. Yeah, I think today Audius is it's 6 million monthly actives, but it's today primarily I'll call them music nerds. So to so people who are really into like discovering the latest tracks and like following mm -hmm. artists and DJs. Today, it's it's long tail discovery. Mm -hmm. um, we did not underwrite the investment, assuming it like rivals Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, that that seems pretty difficult to do. That may end up happening in five or years. But yeah, but I mean, yeah. Wikipedia was told they would never get there versus Britannica. Yeah. <laughs> Ask but, a twenty year old what Encyclopedia Britannica is. They've never held one. <laughs> yeah, but but even even like you know, assume the music nerd population. Is, I don't know one or two percent of the population. That kind of sure. feels right. Like yeah, that's tens like, of millions of people. Lot of, yeah, it's still, that's still a, a great. That's a great, really cool thing. So, um, we we like stuff like Audius because it, it, it's enabling a new form of of discovery and curation. Yeah. Uh, so there is no AWS of DAO creation. That to me seems like an incredible startup that should exist. I, I mean, it it does exist in where various ways. Fund fund focused ones, mm. um, other no you know, multi sig stuff. Party party bid is one. They're not. As easy to use as they should be yet, but I promise you there's 20 teams fiddling in adjacent spaces around right. that. Since you're an expert, can I pitch you my idea and get your candid feedback? Let's do it, Jason. Okay. You're, so welcome here's to Shark idea. Tank. Let's go. It's kind of like Jaquin. I haven't rehearsed this, but uh, imagine, uh, you know, I'm an angel investor. I invest in 100 plus companies a year. I set up a DAO. I say to the DAO, listen, I've been doing this a long time. I know what I'm doing. Uh, you can look at the track record. Here's all the proof. I'm going to uh, set up a coin uh, token that uh, will, uh, I don't know, uh, have 100 million of them come out a year for a dollar each. And then I will deploy them into buying secondary shares, uh, being a fund of fund into venture funds I have access to and uh, companies I have access to. And I will do all that administration. You don't have to vote on the companies, but you can vote when we liquidate the assets or you can vote if you want to take your money back or get more coins. And then every year we plan on selling up to 100 and it's a rolling fund and you basically have access to this class of investments without ever having to be an LP and go through that process. What do you think? It's crazy. Yeah, I mean, no, like it, this this should exist. This is, exists today in very small ways. Some DAOs called like Pleasure Down, Flingo Down and others are doing stuff like this now. Very small scale. But I mean, people have been dreaming about this for a long time. What's the name of it? Club. The one you mentioned? There's one called Pleasure DAO. It's a group of guys doing this. There's one called Flamingo DAO. There's a few, and I'll call them investment club DAOs. Mm. Some of the members, the, there's the Lao, there's Meta Cartel Ventures. I, I forget the names of all of them. Um, but there's already people doing this today. Some members are voting. Some members are non-voting. They all have kind of unique structures. Um, people have been dreaming about what you described for a long time. You've got Funders Club. You've got Angelus Syndicates. Um, mine got, is the syndicate with 9,000 accredited investors, but I don't have a token associated with it. So right. they all, my, what my accredited investors are always asking me is, Hey, you know, I invested in com.com with you. I want to liquidate my position. Other people are saying, 
I invested with calm with you, I think it's gonna go 10 x from here, I want to double down. And I don't have a way to let people trade it. But I would love to just say like, hey, <laughs> just put it into the Dow and say you want to liquidate at this price. And if somebody wants to buy your coins, all of the returns would then be abstracted into the coin price. Yeah, I mean, L LP, L uh, what's it called? L LP secondaries in funds. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've seen them happen over the years. They're not super common, but they do happen. I've They're gotten pitched on them. Like a fund, what you're talking about is a, a venture fund will wrap up. Like when 500 startups started wrapping up their funds because they had issues at their firm, leave it at that. Um, they were saying, hey, we're selling off my interest in 500. I don't want to be associated with it anymore. Or, hey, I'm, I've, had, I've retired. I mean, I'd like you to buy my, you know, uh, assets in this other Acme Ventures or something. So yes, it does happen from time to time. Yeah, but 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 the process of doing it is is extremely difficult. A lot of lawyers, a lot of paperwork, tens of thousands of dollars in legal bills at a minimum. At a minimum, uh, I mean, what's amazing about crypto is all assets get the same interface, which is in the case of Ethereum, the ERC twenty token standard. In the case of Solana, the SPL token standard, and you can ha trade any asset on any piece of infrastructure, mm -hmm. whether it's on Serum or Uniswap or whatever else. And and so you just reduce the administrative and operational complexity of asset transfer and trading by like 100x um like it really is that much of a reduction and naturally by doing that it should become easier for people to trade lp positions in all kinds mm -hmm. of all kinds of right um ventures and such so yeah I, th this should exist the world will eventually get there um a mm. lot of friction between here and there but it, it will be really interesting in it is you take a market that is illiquid for a decade and you would instantly turn it into a 24 7 marketplace like, if yeah, you think about that swing, my LPs could be on the weekends having lunch with each other and trading their positions, you know? The, yeah, they, they, they could. I don't think you'll ever go to that extreme, but certainly, um, like, a lot of things that are, are unnecessarily illiquid should become more liquid, not mm -hmm. like millions of dollars of daily volume, but like, g you can get it from, it takes one to two quarters to exit such a position. Two, it takes one to two days to exit such a position. Amazing. It'd be super amazing. Uh, what do you think about Tether? You see all these fines. You see all this craziness. Do you think that's, everybody says, is a systematic risk for crypto? You take down the whole thing. Um, when you see them getting banned in Canada from being, trading, you see them getting the New York Attorney General's fine. Now this $41 million fine. You see the way they kind of behave sophomorically on Twitter and attack people who are being basic questions, attestations from the Cayman Islands all this stuff put together. And then you see USDC doing it really buttoned up with a publicly traded company with a banking license and all this other stuff they're putting in place and being dollar for dollar. What do you think? Yeah, and what so is the what is the what is the not only what do you think, I think I'm even more thing is what do crypto people when the press isn't around you're having drinks at a bar? What are they saying about this? Do they believe it's a house of cards? Do they believe it's Fugazi? What's the back channel? Yeah, look, so I, I don't have, I'm not close with the Tether team, um, don't know them personally. Uh, people have been making broad-based accusations of all kinds of nefarious things for four or five years now. Um, basically, all of those accusations have been either outright false, or they were technically correct, but actually, like, practically incorrect. Um, at this point, uh, enough people have done enough business with them. Um, in enough volume, meaning like trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars of volume. Yep. That like it's hard to imagine there's any meaningful uh fraud here. Um, 
Have they misrepresented things at times? For sure. Um, yeah. Did they do so in the interest of the market? I would actually argue yes. I can't prove that, but but based on my understanding of what they have and haven't done, they did it to protect the market, which I know is weird and has its own set of problems, but but is not totally crazy. Um, they clearly struggle with PR and comms and like have all of the wrong marketing instincts in every conceivable way. <laughs> you think? Um, yeah. Um, so I, I would not in- encourage their endorse their marketing strategies. Um, but they have built a product and service that people want and like I, mm. Americans generally don't like it. Non-Americans generally do like it. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people in the world that love the idea of having a U.S. dollar without having any counterparty exposure to the United States government. Um, mm. And um, I don't know if Tether actually delivers that product or service or not, but there's a perception among millions of people, if not tens of millions all over the world, that te- USDT provides exposure to the U.S. dollar without ex- counterparty exposure to the U.S. government. Um, but in that, fact, that is like it's a like fundamentally 6%. Interesting- yeah, it's interesting as a value proposition, but as you say, who knows if they live up to that with 6% of their holdings in actual U.S. dollars and the rest being in these wacky commercial paper they won't actually disclose. Yeah, again, they've, they've done a bunch of weird things, and I'm not sure that I agree with them or, or not, but no. they've been doing this for so long at such incredible scale. Um, it's hard not to imagine like they are fully buttoned like they are solvent um the i realize they may to have that taken... would be bernie madoff operated for three decades yeah so look, there, there are there are counter examples in history yeah uh everyone i know who has done they don't tether does not directly face that many entities they only face mm-hmm. a handful of, of the largest trading firms in the space the offshore but, ones right yeah yeah but i mean even, even like for example um sam from ftx and alameda I mean, he has publicly said uh, on the record, well, Alameda has done many billions and billions of dollars of volume with Tether and gotten dollars out of Tether. Yeah. Um, and other people also have done billions of dollars of business with them. I'll say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, to the extent that, that people have tested the system, I mean, it, it has stood up to, to those tests. There's a theory that I've heard, um, which is, yeah, they may have done a bunch of funky stuff. But and they placed bets which they shouldn't have placed, but the bets turned out so good because they were so early. So if they took your USD T and they bought you know crypto at you know five years ago, ten years ago, my lord, they could be do all kinds of crazy stuff because whatever the dollar amount is over the seventy billion is theirs. Yep. So if they bought Bitcoin at two, three, four, five, six thousand dollars after the twenty k crash, uh, you know, after that when it went down to three thousand, I guess. My lord, they could be sitting on 20 extra turns. They could have a $200 billion in a bank account that they've swept so nobody can complain because they're over collateralized, even though they're doing all kinds of fugazi stuff that if they showed it to you, you'd be like, oh, that's like my money manager going to Vegas and 10xing our money. Like you're not supposed to do that, but they did it and it worked out. Therefore, okay, we'll, we'll pay the fines. Who cares? What do you think yeah, of I mean, that theory? Think, and have you heard that theory? I mean, I think that's that mental model is has some some truth to it for sure based on even what they've publicly disclosed like that is at least to some degree true mm. is it five percent true or is it 80 percent true i i, I mm. don't really know um but like yeah like they've look they they are so i i'm fairly certain they are solvent now i'm not going to make any claims about future solvency yeah. um but by all accounts they are they are solvent now they have been solvent for the better part of their history, other than a, a few weird moments in time where there was a hack and some other money was stolen for yep. weird separate related reasons. Um, Do you hold Tether? No, Multicoin does not hold any Tether. 
Would you um, hold Tether? Would you feel safe we, holding your investors' money in Tether? No, I mean, multi-coin is by definition counterparty exposed to the United States government yeah. because I live in the United States and I have yeah. an LLC here and other things. I have no interest in avoiding counterparty exposure to the United States governments. Um, so now- Yeah, it'd be a good idea for you to be as compliant as possible given the changing yes. rule set. Listen, you've been an amazing guest. Uh, would love to have you on again. Congratulations on your amazing success. Uh, Thank you. One fund manager to another. And uh, what's the next deal? I hear there's another deal coming next week. I hear you guys um, are closing in on a big one. And uh, we can hold this episode to the moment after you invest it. So if you want to, you have my word, we'll keep it confidential here. And uh, you will, uh, you can announce this next deal you're doing, and we'll launch it the day you announce. Uh, we do have a bunch of deals in the pipeline. There's I don't a big know one when. coming. I know there's a big I, one coming. There is a few big ones in the works. <laughs> I, uh, I, I don't go. know when they're going to drop, so I'm not going to oh, okay. make you wait here indefinitely for the news to All drop. Right. Well, listen, if there's a way, for, I'm, I'm ready to start experimenting now. I feel like the crypto like crazy period is ending and the legit period is beginning, so I'm, I'm ready to start experimenting and dip my toe in things. So if you have something that's interesting, I want to dip my toe and kind of start learning now. So let me know. And then whenever you announce, come back on the program and let's talk about whatever the newest project is and have that founder or founding team on. Uh, you've been a great guest, as I said, and uh, continued success. And you're hey, in Austin Jason. and you're hiring or not? We are I know you're doing a big $250 million fund. I heard it's going to be wrapping up this year. So what are you hiring for? What are you looking for in professionals at your organization? Um, investment team, we are hiring right now. Um, our job application process for the investment team is write an essay about anything in crypto uh, and email it to me. Um, the only requirement is it has to be as good as what is on our blog. Um, okay, so beat it. the blog or better, and then your email is? You can guess it. First Kyle name at? at? First name at. It's pretty easy. So uh, Kyle in the mailroom didn't get your email address. So, okay, that's always my <laughs> note to <laughs> founders. Like, yeah. can I get that person's email? I'm like, first name at multicoin.capital might work. I don't know. Uh, I like that. I like that hiring model. Write some uh, the uh, uh, thesis, couple pages. That's better than a blog post we have. Yeah. That, are uh, are you into the writing culture? Like the uh, did you get into the writing culture as described by Amazon? The right yes. first culture. We are heavily right first culture. I am getting into it too. It is so much better. Why is writing first culture better with distributed teams? And in 2021, explain why it's so good. Yeah, so specifically for investment team, it's it's particularly useful because we have people across three or four different time zones. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the great thing about a Google Doc is 10 people can comment concurrently, mm. but 10 people can't talk into a Zoom concurrently. Mm. Um, and so it actually accelerates the overall pace of the conversation because multiple people can talk to each other concurrently. It's better throughput. Better throughput. Um, and then it forces specificity enforces clarity if if you make it's much easier to make hand wavy dumb claims while you're talking and ranting mm. than it is while you're writing something down you papered um, it you have to have clarity and you have to take a position as opposed to the theatrics of some powerpoint or just speaking on zoom jason crypto is going to change the world we're going to decentralize all of the things okay that's right. that's how this is going to work <laughs> i love it all right listen continued success and we'll see you all next time on this week in startups bye bye <laughs>